Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 302, England's Garland. Now, to all of you lot, this is just another week, just another blessed podcast you're going to have to wade your way through. But for me, I have to tell you, it's the first bit of recording I have done for two months while I have dealt with medical matters, so it feels very good to be back. I have a few episodes pre-written before all that medical stuff, so I'm hopeful there will not be a hiatus while I return to full strength. But I am, for example still wearing a blanket on my knees while I watch telly, so it is a bit of a possibility. Now let me start by talking about my mate Royfield, you know of the things that made England fame, and his podcast, Ten American Presidents. It's an audio documentary on the ten pivotal presidencies in America's history. Each episode features contemporary audio clips and newspaper reports to enrich the narration, which is provided by an expert on that presidency. Each show is an immersive dive not only into the life of that president, but of the time in which he lived, as well as fascinating aspects of each presidency, such as how the presidency has affected American English, impeachment or speech writing. So, check it out. Ten American Presidents with Royfield Brown on a podcatcher near you. Also, at the end of this podcast, after I've signed off, you will find a brief trailer from Royfield so you can find out more and get a flavour. Now, over the last few episodes, we've covered the halting start of England's international trade with a distinct focus on Africa. That leaves us with one more topic to cover. I speak of the senior service. And no, I do not refer to the delicious navy-cut brand of untipped cigarettes of which I used to partake behind the bike sheds of Loughborough all those years ago. I refer, in fact, to the English Navy. Because we can now begin to refer to the Royal Navy, or the Navy Royal, as I will explain in some exhaustive and possibly reasonably dull detail for the rest of the episode. I might start with a frankly contentious discussion of why the Navy is referred to as the Senior Service. (coughs) The traditional answer is that England had a standing Navy run and financed by the state a good deal earlier than it had an army so managed. But is that really the right answer? Don't we know that really, in fact, it's because the Navy was just way cooler than the Army? Now don't get cross with me, just putting that out there. It may reflect those long and deeply pointless arguments against a Northern Irish friend who goaded me with the question, name me two great English generals then. 
The conversation normally progressed on to how Wellington was really Irish, followed by a bit of tussle about the ancestry of Montre, so that the only banker was John Churchill. And you know that when you've resorted to advancing the claims to glory of Red Vuz Buller, that frankly, you're playing on a sticky wicket. Though, you know, an alcohol fueled argument at two o'clock in the morning could never be described as an honest search for the truth. Whereas if the argument had been about the Navy, well, obviously, the banker is Horatio, go straight at him, Nelson. There's Blake, Jarvis, Rodney, Anson, Drake, Collingwood, Sydney. I mean, I'd be tucking into my eggs, bacon and black pudding and slice of fried bread by the time I finished the list. And that's without making the schoolboy error of referring to the frankly astounding life of Thomas Cochrane, who was, of course, Scottish. And obviously, I don't want to upset any army fans out there, but, you know, let's just be honest, shall we? Moving on, then. The Elizabeth Navy was one of those bits of national myth and legend, none of which were allowed to have any more, of course, in the cause of self-flagellation and the omnipresent marketing copy of The True Story, The Unsolved Story, Fake History Exposed, Mythbusters, which are now so popular. Life was so much better when we were all Whigs. And actually, there are a couple of myths about the Elizabethan Navy, and let's have a hack at them. The first element of the traditional story is that the inherent naval genius of the English invented a new kind of warship, the broadside-armed sailing ship, the so-called race galleon. Over the course of time, this spark of inventive island genius swept away the obsolete ships of yesterday, deployed in great error, of course, by the backward nations of southern Europe, for sure. The Elizabethans apparently also developed line of battle, inspired by the new broadside capability, and all this genius meant that by the end of the reign, England was a major naval power, while on her way to three centuries of dominance of the high seas and a deep-sea empire, cry Harry and St George, hip hip! So not a vast amount of this is true, as we will see. And indeed, Royfield, of previous mention, holds with some vehemence that the English navy was rubbish until the 18th century. Royfield is, of course, partly right, but also, you know, well, mainly wrong. But some small elements of the myth are true. The warships of Elizabeth's age were the ancestors of those magnificent 18th century warships, and they did mount the majority of the armament on the broadside. Certainly, Royfield's right bit is that the Elizabethan navy was not a world-beater in the context of the Spanish, Dutch, Venetian. Nor were they the first to invent the race galleon, sorry. But although the English were not first in many areas, nonetheless, the Elizabethan age of the navy was still a period of genius, in a quiet, rather plodding way, that will probably bore the pants off you all, and was, but was part of its transformation. But don't tell me I didn't warn you about the boring bit. What is certainly true of the Elizabethans is that more than any preceding age, they absolutely understood the importance of the sea and their navy in the way we only begin to glimpse at the end of Henry's reign, and it's doubtful that either Henry or Mary really recognised the navy as a strategic national tool. But as soon as Elizabeth came to the throne, a review of naval strength was put in place. Nicholas Throckmorton wrote to Cecil, Bend your force, credit and device to maintain and increase your navy by all the means you can possible. For in this time, considering all circumstances, it is the flower of England's garland, your best and best cheap defence, and most redoubted of your enemies and doubtful friends. 
It was a sentiment of the 16th century wars only confirmed and strengthened. In 1615, a pamphlet would declare, As concerning ships, it is that which everyone knoweth and can say, that they are our weapons, they are our ornaments, they are our strength, they are our pleasures, they are our defence, they are our profit. The subject by them is made rich, the kingdom through them strong, the prince in them mighty. This is an absolute critical change that would play a central part in England's future, placing the fleet, something that had been an occasional outsourced private thing for centuries, was now central to national strategy. This garland then was fully part of England's patriotic endeavour at sea, in which religion also played its part. I believe I mentioned that through the 1560s and 70s, English Protestant seamen formed something of a piratical partnership with the Huguenots in particular, but also with the Dutch and Scots, formed a sort of naval Protestant brigade. Huguenot seamen like William Nettestu helped England's first forays into the Caribbean. Nettestu, for example, sailed with Drake. French ships had sailed with Hawkins on his third ill-fated campaign, and on his return, Hawkins had helped supply the Huguenot stronghold of La Rochelle. England's war at sea against what they saw as Catholic tyranny, was quickly part of England's story, the Protestant crusade. Now this is a story which has been roundly poo-pooed by the more cynical modern historian in a rather familiar race to the bottom that historians sometimes indulge in, a search for the most cynical explanation, simplistic and eye-catching. So, Bruce Lenman concludes that the idea that privateers were Protestant crusaders is nonsense. Like the Lord Admiral and his chief judge, they were primarily cheerful thieves. As so often is, it is easy to forget just how important religion was in the lives of 16th century Europeans. Yes, the English went to sea for profit and for glory, but they also went to sea to fight England's enemies, to fight for freedom against what they saw as Catholic tyranny, and they went to fight God's war. Profit and higher ideals are not all incompatible and their adversaries were motivated in very similar ways. That's the lovely thing about studying history, I would contend. You understand that more than one truth can coexist, even if those truths appear to be contradictory. Profit sitting alongside a commitment to our higher shared purpose. Oh dear. I'm noticing a tendency to get more preachy. Is anyone noticing that? So, wherein lay this genius of the Elizabethans, if it lay not in the invention of the famous race galleon? Well, the sad truth is that a large part of it lay in the quality of administration and also in that clear understanding of the central importance of England's naval strength, given the diplomatic situation and fear of all the threats around them. As I say, as soon as Elizabeth came to the throne, she ordered a full review of England's naval strength to be carried out and for the stores to be built up. The review found that the fleet consisted of 34 ships, here are some stats for you, just to give you a moment to open your notebook, lick the end of your pencil. Eleven of those ships were over 200 tonnes, plus there were ten barks and one brigantine. All of those were to be kept up. Who knows what a bark and a brigantine are? I had to refer to a glossary. In the 16th century, a bark is apparently any small seagoing vessel. 
which is a disappointingly imprecise answer. And a brigantine is a small, oared vessel of the galley type. So now you know. Anyway, the remaining 12 vessels were to be binned. The Commission also looked at private vessels and identified 45 merchant ships which may be put in fashion for war. So, the old traditional approach then. And then there were 20 other vessels suitable for victualling. It's a reminder that when looking at sea power, although we can now talk of the Royal Navy as a separate thing, Elizabethans would still consider the whole stock of ships and men across the public-private continuum. Even more interestingly, though, if we could get any more interesting, the report set a standard to which the Navy should now aspire. 24 ships between 200 and 800 tonnes, for barks of 60 to 80 tonnes, and for pinnaces of 40 tonnes, two of those. We'll talk about administration in just a tick, don't worry. But money is, of course, important. At the tail end of Mary's reign, her very effective Lord Treasurer, the Earl of Winchester, made all naval budget and expenditure the direct responsibility of the Lord Treasurer, advised by the Lord Admiral. The idea was to take the faff away from Mary of having to sign a stream of dockets. But the change had much greater impact than that. It ensured the Navy not only stayed at the heart of strategy, but it was relatively well-funded. Burley would become Lord Treasurer in 1572, and he, of course, was keenly interested in long-term naval strategy and planning and the most influential man in government. Thus did the Navy remain such a central part of England's strategy. So, Winchester in 1557 committed to investing to restore the Navy to full efficiency, and the result was a building programme. In 1557 and 8, at least 157,000 was spent on dockyards and victualling. After Elizabeth came to the throne, she immediately asked Parliament for money, for the continual maintenance of the English Navy to be ever in readiness against all evil haps, the strongest wall and defence that can be against the enemies of this land. Classic schoolgirl error, incidentally, describing England as an island. Oops. But more importantly, by 1561, seven new ships had been built, and the annual expenditure was 28,000 a year. By the end of 1564, 14 ships had been built. Expenditure then reduced, but what had become clear was that this was no short-term panic. England was in this for the long game. Now, the long game meant that an administrative structure needed to be built to support the Navy. The first halting steps had been taken by Henry VIII, and over the next few decades a permanent administration grew up that was quickly more sophisticated than any other naval power, France and Spain included, Venice possibly accepted. It meant that as the navy adapted and changed, it was able to rely on a long institutional memory to support it. At its head was the Council of the Marine, soon to become the Navy Board, composed of the officers of the Navy, each with their own area of competence. The Council met regularly and advised the Privy Council and the Monarch. Parallel to it was the Ordnance Board, responsible for equipping the Navy, of course, and the Master of Naval Ordnance was part of the Council, providing a link between the two. What you also get is an alliance between private and public shipbuilders and merchants that underpins the Navy with expertise and shapes the character of Elizabethan warfare. It feels odd to us, but that public-private 
relationship will be a long-term feature of the Navy. The Navy Board reported to the Lord Treasurer on the Privy Council, giving a crucial level of financial support to naval development. Elizabeth spent an average of just under 16000 a year on her Navy, 6.5% of her budget. In the scheme of things, especially compared to the Spanish budget, this level of expenditure would is described in technical accountancy terms as piddling, or indeed piffling if you use the SAPS platform. Yet, the investment yielded a navy that would be in some ways the competitor or even superior in some ways to the leading European power and a maritime power at that, Spain. Infrastructure developed to support the navy in which Elizabeth invested with a substantial structure of stores and dockyards. A staff of salaried shipwrights was employed and by 1559 nearly 520 shipwrights and 100 labourers were based at the dockyards at Deptford, Woolwich and Portsmouth. Salaried master shipwrights quickly became the beating heart of the shipyards, therefore developing the expertise of shipbuilding there. Under the master shipwright Matthew Baker, it seems that designs began to be recorded on paper rather than relying on scale models. Now, I know this isn't so much, but at this time it was done nowhere else, and it allowed much faster discussion and development of designs. It allowed the development of distinct classes of ships. It also allowed the building of ships without the master being there all the time. So look, seems like a good idea. It is worth speaking a little more about Matthew Baker, since his career is a good example of the joys and perils of his Elizabethan shipbuilding. Firstly, as we'll learn, English shipbuilding did not exist in a vacuum. Shipwrights were keen to learn from other nations. So as a 21-year-old, Baker had travelled to the Levant and there acquired a good working knowledge of Venetian shipbuilding. Venetian expertise was highly regarded. The highest-paid master shipwright at Deptford was indeed a Venetian who was employed for over 40 years to look after the galleys. Being a master shipwright in England also required a range of skills. He was a businessman as well as a technical expert, and the business side for Baker was a deeply painful experience, leading to bitter disputes and politicking in the 1570s between him and John Hawkins. But it's for his technical expertise that he is most remembered, and the greatest science he brought to the process. He was the first English shipwright to replace the old geometrical foundation of boat measurement with mathematical techniques, and his calculation, using a ship's dimensions to establish her burden and dead weight tonnage, became a standard for almost half a century, following its statement in 1582. In 1627, it was referred to as Mr Baker's Old Way. Baker was probably responsible for the introduction of a new design of ship, the race-built galleon, which gets a lot of press, of course, in histories. Hawkins gets a bunch of credit for this, but he was mainly responsible for the administrative side of it. Baker stretched his hand also to fortifications, hurriedly built to welcome the Spanish Armada on its trip to Sears. When he died at 83, he was still directing work at naval shipyards, not a man for whom retirement had any interest. He left behind him a set of materials containing the earliest technical drawings of English vessels with formulae, many of them Baker's own devising, for laying out their dimensions and proportions. 
1607, the navigator John Davis wrote of his skill and surpassing grounded knowledge for the building of ships advantageable to all purpose. He hath not in any nation his equal. Matthew Baker, ladies and gentlemen, not to be confused with Matt Baker. Alongside these developments was the rise of the Ordnance Board, again with a permanent staff, and a permanent official, the Surveyor of the Victuals of the Sea, the supply of which had been a running sore from time immemorial. From 1565, the arrangement was made to have a single contractor for all naval requirements at an agreed and regularly reviewed rate. Victualling remained a problem, of course, partly due to the essential inflexibility of agricultural supply, but also because of the limited carrying capacity of the English warship, which we'll come to in a little while. However, all these administrative changes worked well to create a highly effective navy. So, let us leave the golden shores of naval administration then, casting mournful eyes over our shoulders as we leave, and talk about that bit of myth. The invention by the English of the race galleon, the line of battle, and a navy designed to build an international empire, a navy that swept aside the old carrack and galleys of yesteryear. What of that myth then? Well, let us set the scene by being quite clear that even by the end of the period, it was not the sailing ship that was seen as the premier engine of war at sea. I am pretty sure that with my mother's milk, I imbibed the idea that galleys were lightweight losers, suitable only for the lightweight Mediterranean, blown out of the water by Elizabethan sailing ships in the cold and hardy waters of the north. Wah, wah, oops. My mother's milk was in error, and I hereby promise that this rather gross metaphor will never be used again on the history of England. Spanish officers never stopped calling for galleys as their most effective weapon in coastal waters, which is, after all, where most naval warfare took place. English officers were well aware of the advantages of the galley. In 1602, after a successful action against the Portuguese, for example, the English captain wrote back with relief, a president which has seldom been seen or heard of for ships to be destroyers of galleys. So why were galleys so feared? Well, the traditional way of fighting was to get the weather gauge, upwind as it were, so you could control the encounter and also avoid any nasty smells from your enemy, and then close with the enemy, discharging your guns in a bit of explosion of smoke and then board and kill them all. These are the guns which had been employed for over a 100 years now, and they were primarily breech-loaded people killers rather than heavy Ship killers. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In this scenario, high-sided carracks were the bee's elbows. But then galleys moved on, and they mounted large guns in the eye of the ship, in the bow, that is. And these, these were the ship killers. 
Now, bearing in mind the galleys' superior manoeuvrability, you have a deadly combination. Galleys formed up in line abreast, so that's all bows pointing forward, not broadside, all firing forward well before Carrax could get to grips and fire with its own guns, which of course did not point forward and anyway were only papal killers anyway. Carrax essentially disappeared from the Mediterranean with this innovation. Shipwrights had struggled with this essential problem for many years. The ships detailed in the beautiful Antony Roll in 1545 show a very wide variety of craft as the English experimented with new approaches. At this stage, the big traditional ships of course still played a very large part and size was considered as ever to be great and there remained large carracks as central. But new designs reflected the supremacy and threat of the galley and the effectiveness of their armament and many of them were based on oars which doesn't fit with my mental image of the English navy at all. Row barges were undecked oared vessels of about 20 tonnes, essentially gun platforms for defence. In fact, the English quickly grew to hate them, thinking them far too weak and vulnerable. Oddly, the French rather admired them and picked up on the design. Galleasses were a new design, which combined oars of the galley with a high-sided carrack. Two were built in 1545 of three or 400 tonnes with a complete bank of oars. But again, the design seems to have been quickly dropped. The idea was for the galleasses to form a sort of mobile wing to the main fleet, but their size seems to have meant the oars were never a very effective means of propulsion. Henry also built one galley in true Mediterranean fashion, the Galley Subtle of 1543. Around the 1560s and 1570s, though, a new way of tackling the problem came to the fore, the race galleon. Contrary to popular belief, these were not invented in England, but they emerged in answer to the same challenge of the galley in Scotland, France, Denmark, Portugal and England. The essence of the galleon was to combine the forepart of the galley with the afterpart of a carrack. Race Galleon is a great name which suggests speed and nimbleness, which is in fact entirely appropriate, but in fact it came from the word rasé, having its upper parts raised or cut away. At the same time, the hull was considerably longer in relation to the beam as was normal for ships, which therefore delivered fast and stable ships which handled well and were weatherly. But the big one was now two big guns were mounted at the front, and in the bigger ships, there were two more guns on the gun deck below. Now at last, northern countries had developed an effective competitor to the galley. By the 1570s, John Hawkins, P-45 in hand from his international expeditions, was working to the Navy Board under contract, managing the renewal of Navy stock. Under his direction, the speed of updating with the new designs increased. In his first year, six Navy ships... Triumph, Victory, White Bear, Hope, Philip and Mary and Antelope were converted into race-built galleons and by 1585 half the Navy's ships conformed to the new design. This was not all though. At the same time England achieved a level of leadership in the provision of ordnance to the Navy. Now guns were expensive, particularly bronze guns. Bronze 
had the advantage of much greater flexibility than iron and therefore a, a lower failure rate. But every time you made one, the mould was broken and they were therefore never standard and the metal was very expensive. England was not a rich place and procuring guns was a problem. But consciously under Henry VIII, England found a solution, establishing and developing an iron industry in the Weald of Kent and Sussex, designed to develop gun founding specifically. By 1574, there were 52 furnaces and 58 forges in the Weald. Now, iron had a major disadvantage as compared to bronze. An overcharged bronze gun will split, whereas an iron gun will explode catastrophically, killing all around it. Iron guns corroded. They were much heavier. But they had one whopping advantage. They were, comparatively speaking, as cheap as chips. And with increasing expertise, the cost of English gun founding fell, even at a time of price inflation. From being a net importer of guns, England became an exporter of a weapon of which they were virtually the only manufacturer. With expertise and specialisation, English gun founders and the Navy customers began to standardise the size of the gun bore, which has got to be a massive advantage when supplying and fitting out a fleet. In the 16th century, and listen up here because I found this particularly fascinating, there were three types of muzzle-loading gun. You ready? Perriers, through stone... <coughs> Perriers, though using stone, were short, light, almost, as you might say, little more than fizzy water. Ha! Personnel guns with a short range. Cannon were heavier guns of medium length, throwing stone or iron shot. And culverins were the longest and heaviest of all. Now, isn't that interesting? And just to think, I called all of them cannon. Tusk, and I say again, tusk, shame on me. The English chose culverins. This was not that it gave them greater range. Smoothbore guns were also inherently inaccurate, so captains tended to fire at no more than 350 to 400 yards, and even then, it was a bit of a lottery. But the heavier the gun, the less likely it was to fail, and English culverins had long lives, often of decades. And the heavier the gun, the more it damped the recoil from firing. The culverin was therefore ever the practical gunner's first choice. At the same time, the development of corned gunpowder also helped. Older serpentine powder tended to separate into its elements. Corned powder was also glazed to protect the powder from decomposition. As a result, it burned more evenly, was more powerful and more reliable. There is one more fact to, con to consider here. Without wanting to be dull, the principle of competitive advantage lies, does it not, in segmentation and specialisation. The idea that success comes from dominating a particular segment based on that segment's specific need rather than trying to keep everyone happy. My podcast, for example, is particularly successful because although I only have one listener, my mum, she listens every week. England does a similar thing with its navy in the 16th century. Spain and Portugal had multiple needs for their ships, and the resulting caravels were marvels of seaworthiness which beautifully traded off the need for defence and for carrying cargo. The English had no colonial empire, and 
relative little trade compared to those nations. The purpose of the Navy Royal was to defend its home shores. So in the design of its race galleons, it could focus on that. Its ships tended to be longer and thinner, more nimble and seaworthy, yet able to carry a higher complement as its nice and cheap heavy guns. The cargo capacity of these ships was essentially pants by comparison with the caravel, and this was a major problem for major international sailing. English ships had to stop to reprovision constantly, so much so that the Spanish accused the English of eating way too much, being gut buckets and constantly on the pies. In fact, they had it the wrong way around. It's just that the English ships could carry less. Although, to be fair, they weren't wrong about the pies entirely. The result, then, was that the Elizabethans developed a navy superbly designed for war in its own coastal waters. The tradition that the Elizabethans developed a new ship design based on a broadside approach to battleships that were the basis for a far-flung international empire is just incorrect. Elizabethan ships were designed for a defensive war in coastal waters based on beating the galley at its own game, firing ahead based on a galleon hull with a heavy armament of iron guns with a powerful and flexible rig. That last phrase, by the way, powerful and flexible rig, I have copied with that understanding from Professor Rogers, since I essentially don't understand the use of the term rig in connection to naval design. I am very willing to be educated, so advice, please. But the tradition is right, in essence, in a way, that the Elizabethans created a superb tool which could compete now in its chosen field with the best in the world, at a fraction of the cost. As the 17th century will show, it wasn't always a world-beater, particularly with the Dutch, but it was near the top of the Premier League. And with this tool, Elizabethan sailors would take to sea, motivated by a fervent mixture of money, freedom of their country from what they firmly believed was a Catholic tyranny, and the advancement of the Protestant religion. I have gone on a little this week, I'm sorry for that, but we have covered a lot of ground. I hope you find the information useful and you can regale your friends in the boozer over a pint or maybe an extremely sophisticated Scotch and American about the benefits of corned powder and why drinking a Perrier in the 16th century would have been impossible and the growth of gun founding in the weald. I only wish I could be a fly on the wall as you hold court. And that was a joy. I did love that. But for the next two episodes, sadly, we come to a far less attractive and painful subject for a deeply tribal Englishman such as myself. I speak of Elizabethan Ireland. First up will be a character called Shane the Proud. Thank you all for listening, good luck, and have a great fortnight. Ooh, and here's Royfield Brown and his trailer on 10 American Presidents. Bye! Nixon's the one. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. Three shots were heard to ring out as Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy rode in the back seat of the open car. And Mrs. Kennedy shouted, oh no. The motorcade sped on. Ten American presidents, from Washington to Obama. Yes, we is a podcast narrated by guest hosts, where the life and legacy of the 10 most pivotal American presidencies is explored in depth and in color. My name is Dan Carlin. I'm Mike Duncan. My name is Zach Twomley. Each show is intercut with a musical score, and where possible, archive news clips to set you in the time of that presidency. I have the pleasure to present to you 
Dr. Martin Luther King, JR. As America concludes its 2020 election cycle, this month we present the election of 1960, a closely contested election where the telegenic Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy defeated incumbent Vice President Richard Nixon. Can you imagine if this country elects a Democratic House and elects Dick Nixon, Republican President of the United States? And then Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn go over to meet with him and sit down with Dick Nixon? who in 1954 called me a liar. Some Republicans and many journalists believe that Kennedy benefited from vote fraud, especially in Texas, where his running mate Lyndon B. Johnson was senator, and in the northern state of Illinois. This is Vince Garrity broadcasting from outside of the Chicago Stadium in the heart of Chicago, where we are watching one of the finest political parades seen in this country as a salute to Senator John F. Kennedy. More than 300 beautiful floats Bands and marching units are proceeding down a two-mile route here on Madison Street in Chicago under the leadership of Chicago's mayor, Richard J. Daley. These two states were important because if Nixon had won both, he would have earned 270 electoral votes, one more than the 269 needed to win the presidency. In Illinois, still unfinished, Kennedy ahead 34,850 precincts in Illinois still out, 400 of them in Cook County, a half in Chicago. Kennedy won a 303 to 219 electoral college victory, and is generally considered to have won the national popular vote by just under 113,000 votes, a margin of just 0.17%. Relive this election. The first election of the modern television age, on 10 American presidents this month. As I look at the board here, the there are still some results still to come in. If the present trend continues, Senator Kennedy will be the next president of the United States.